Good morning and happy Sabbath. It's a beautiful day on the peninsula. And when you um, live life in this world, it really does make you want to go home. Thank you very much, Doug and Bert. I love songs about heaven. And I love songs that make me think about going home. Would you pray with me one more time? Lord, um, I'm asking for you to enable me to lift up Jesus. Amen. So when I went to Walla Walla, uh, it was college then, I had a friend who was, um, he was a theology major with me, and he fell in love. And I remember um, when I would see him take his girlfriend on a date, and then he would take her back to the dorm and drop her off. And I would see him, and they had been dating for quite some time, and he said, Bill, I'm just tired of dropping her off. He said, I want to take her home. So they got married. We went to seminary together, uh, and today he is a colonel in the Air Force, and he's a chaplain. And I was just very moved by stories, for example, during the, the Iraq War, where he would tell me, you know, where some of our soldiers were injured, and they, the surgeons were trying to save their lives. He would just go stand off to the side and just pray in the operating room. Uh, so I'm very glad that a good man like him is a spiritual shepherd for our, our uh, men and women in the armed forces. So when we were at seminary, he and I liked to play basketball together a lot. And on Wednesday nights, there would be a basketball night at one of the gyms, and often I would pick him up or he would pick me up. And one night he picked me up and I sat down in the front seat and I heard, I heard, I heard and felt a crunch underneath me. And I thought, uh-oh, what did I sit on? So I reached behind me and I pulled out his wife's sunglasses. And they were mangled beyond repair. And I felt bad and so I held them up and I said, Randy, I'm going to take these with me, and I'm going to go find them in the store, and I'm going to buy your wife a new pair of sunglasses. And he said, no, 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 I, I don't want you to do that. He said, the sunglasses were old, and she left them in the seat. No, we don't want you to buy new sunglasses. So we argued. And I played my trump card. I said, Randy. If you sat on my wife's sunglasses and destroyed them, would you want to buy her another pair? And he kind of lowered his head and he nodded and he said, yeah. The argument was over. About a month later, my wife and I invited Randy and Krista to our basement apartment. Uh, a lot of graduate students live in basement apartments, and it was Friday night, and it's really fun to 
celebrate Sabbath and, and share a meal with friends. So we invited them over. And my wife and I had not been very, married very long, and so she liked to use the things we got for our wedding. And so for a very simple meal, she had her china out, and we had received this crystal pitcher. And my wife had, uh, was going to use that to serve the juice. And so Krista, my friend's wife, was, was making the juice, and she was pouring the juice with this pitcher, and it was a very beautiful, very expensive. I don't know what relative gave that to us, but it was very beautiful, very expensive. And as she was pouring, her hand slipped, and we all watched. It, it seemed like it was in slow motion as it went down to the floor, and then, and, and we all just stood there and looked at it. And they looked at each other, and then they looked at us, and, and they said, we're going to buy you another one. And we said, no. We don't want you to buy another pitcher. Um, it doesn't really match anything else we had, and somebody gave it to our wedding, and, and, and we don't want you to buy another pitcher. We said that because we were all going to school. None of us had any money, and it was a very expensive pitcher. And we argued. And then my friend said, Bill, if you broke my wife's pitcher, would you want to buy her another one? And I just lowered my head and I nodded. We still have the pitcher. It's a bit smaller. It was really expensive. And we still use it from time to time. There are some things you never expect to hear. When I said that to him about his wife's sunglasses, I didn't expect for him to use it back on me. There's sometimes where you hear things and you don't, you don't expect to hear. And there is a story in the Bible that I genuinely did not like. It was in the Gospel of Matthew. And here's a story about Jesus, and I did not like the story. And I remember thinking to myself, that's a story I will never preach on. And then you're doing a sermon series, and look what's coming. It's this story. And I'm, I'd finally decided, okay, I can be a coward and run away for it, or I can try to look and, and ask the question, why did God have this story written about his son? What is going on here? So, I dug into it, and it has become one of my favorite stories about Jesus. In Matthew chapter 15, this, um, we begin in verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Where was there? We have in the scriptures, we have a record of Jesus making several journeys to Jerusalem. Other than that, he spent his time in Galilee, which would be like spending your time in Washington State in Port Angeles and Forks. Smaller, slightly more rural, maybe Squim too. 
Jesus spent 90% of his time on this earth in those places. Rural, out of the, the, the mainstream, away from the sources of power. And so he, he went from there and he departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is the only time that we have Jesus leaving either Galilee or Judea, with the exception of when he was a baby and he went down to Egypt. Otherwise, Jesus stayed in a very small geographical area. But he made this journey to Tyre and Sidon. This journey would have been between 50 and 70 miles on foot. So it would take a while to get there. There is, uh, I want to show you a map. Um, there, are, there were two routes that he could have taken. But they would have been about the same time because one of them, while it was less distance, it was quite a bit steeper. And so it would have taken quite a bit of time to make this journey. So uh, I'm going to go back to, there we go. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a woman of Canaan, she's not Jewish, a woman of Canaan came to him from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. So this woman was not Jewish, but the, the, the titles she used to address Jesus are very interesting. Lord, she believed that he was not just a teacher. Lord. Son of David was a messianic term. So this woman had a bit of knowledge and a lot of faith. She believed more than the disciples did in who Jesus was. How in the world would she have gotten her information? Well, when we go to, in the book of Mark 3.8, it says, when they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. So people had come from this woman's region they had seen how Jesus taught and how he healed, and she had heard. So when she heard Jesus was there, her daughter was in a horrible situation. And so she came to Jesus, and she asked him for help. The first word she said to him was, have mercy on me. When would you say that to someone? When would you say, have mercy on me. Maybe when a police officer pulls you over. Uh, maybe when the IRS are auditing you. Maybe when you're at the ER and your child is sick and you're asking for mercy. It's a very humbling phrase to use. Have mercy on me. She didn't say, have mercy on my daughter. She said, have mercy on me. I heard a phrase the other day that said, <clears throat> that said, a parent is only as happy as their least happy child. 
when my daughter was a student at Walla Walla, there were three times we got a phone call. Either she was sick or a guy broke up with her or something where within an hour, either my wife or I were in the car driving to Walla Walla to go be with her, to support her. She asked of Jesus a favor for her. Have mercy on me. And she used the phrase, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. Now the word severely there is the Greek word kakos. And it has the, the sense of the word is that she was being harmed and damaged. This was a horrible situation. And for this mother to watch her child suffer was, it was just excruciating to her soul. Don't it make you want to go home? When we see our kids hurt, when, they see, when we see them being damaged in this broken world, she asked for mercy for her because her daughter was suffering. What tone of voice do you hear her using? This wasn't a casual, hey, if you don't mind, could you please? This was passionate. This was urgent. And that's why Jesus' response is puzzling. But he answered her, not a word. Have you ever had someone give you the silent treatment? Where they don't respond? Where they ignore you? What does that feel like? For, for people like me, who are verbal, that is just excruciating. When I do premarriage counseling with couples, I teach them about the turtle and the skunk. Most often when people are in a relationship, one of them is a turtle and one of them is a skunk. The turtle, when there's conflict, goes into their shell and they become quiet. The skunk needs to talk and needs to process. They're a verbal processor. And the thing about it is, they need their partner to process with. And so what I, uh, we'll spend time talking about that. And I've never seen two skunks marry. It's always a turtle or a skunk or two turtles. That can happen sometimes. Um, but when a turtle is hurt and upset, when a skunk is hurt and upset, a verbal processor, and they can't talk, it feels like they can't breathe. But my wife, who's a turtle, tells me, well, okay, Bill, that's true, but when, as a turtle, when you try to make me talk and I'm not ready to talk, I feel like I can't breathe. And so the answer is, you didn't know you were going to get marriage counseling today, did you? The answer is to make an appointment so that the, the skunk can relax knowing we'll get to talk and the turtle can, because the turtle, it's not that they don't want to talk, it's that they have to go into their shell and think about it beforehand. 
he answered her, not a word. Is that courteous? Is that polite? No. So, what was Jesus doing here? We know that the Jews did not associate with Gentiles to the point they wouldn't go to their house, to the point where when Jesus asked for a drink of water, she was shocked that a Jew would even ask for a drink of water in the story of the woman at the well. So not only was this woman a Gentile, who a Jew, if you encountered them, you now considered yourself unclean. Not only that, but she was a woman. In one of the commentaries I read when preparing for the sermon, they talked about a famous rabbi who his wife tried to talk to him in public and he would not talk with her. A Jewish male would pray a prayer, God, I thank you that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And so the, the status of women in this era, so not only was she a Gentile, but she was a woman. And so what Jesus, what it appears what Jesus was doing was he had the woman here right in front of him, he's interacting with her, and he's got his disciples. And so he decides to turn this into a teachable moment and teach a master class to the disciples. And he sees in this woman faith that he believes that she can hang with him and help him to teach the disciples and hold up a mirror to see their, their own prejudice. Because the disciples actually believed that God's love was limited to certain people. They had a hierarchy. You know, we t we, you hear about India where they have the caste system. These folks, the disciples, had a caste system. And Jesus wanted to teach them about this. He answered her not a word. She experienced the silence of God. Have you ever experienced the silence of God? When you urgently needed him to show up and he was silent. That is a very lonely place. At the moment, it feels cruel. One, one author called it God's waiting room. It's a lonely place when God is silent. But we're in good company when we are in God's waiting room. When we are experiencing the silence of God, we are in good company. Elijah said, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Job, he experienced the silence of God. Jeremiah, John the Baptist, he's in prison, and he becomes so discouraged. Jesus says, the greatest prophet ever born. The one who said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He now sends his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one or shall we look for someone else? John the Baptist 
lost his conviction of what God had shown him when God was silent. When God is silent, it can put us in a dark place. There's a a mother that I'm very close to. She was married, she had twin boys, and she lost her husband to a brain tumor. She remarried, she had two more boys, and her boys came to Auburn Academy when I was pastor and Bible teacher there. And I have done funerals for three of her four boys. sometimes in life you don't have words. She experienced the silence of God in a way that I have rarely seen. But when I see her, she smiles, she hugs me, and she talks about Jesus. But she had some very dark, dark moments. In Psalms chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? If you live long enough on planet Earth, you will experience the silence of God. Why do you hide yourself? And as, as often happens in life, it usually gets worse before it gets better. I wish life wasn't like that. His disciples came to him saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. So not only did she experienced the silence of God, but now she's experienced the coldness of God's people. Have you ever met Christians who were not nice? People who were called to love. People who said they had been saved by love. People who Jesus said that we would, they would know they were his because they loved and they don't love. I've seen some really mean Christians sometimes. And guess what? I've been one. I've been one. Send her away. And they said this in, hello, I'm here. I can hear what you're saying. Send her away, for she cries out after us. She's bothering us. She is inconvenient. Would you please send her away? She is not worth your time. Have you ever experienced the coldness of God's people? Have you ever sensed the people wished you would go away? Have you ever felt they didn't care? Have you ever had people draw a circle that left you out? 
I keep wanting Jesus to reassure this lady. She's hurting. I keep wanting him to give her a hug. But it gets worse before it gets better. But he answered and said, finally he's talking to her now. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So she has to experience the silence of God and the coldness of God's people and now she has to come face to face with a deep sense of unworthiness. That God's grace and his mercy and his healing is for better people than me. Unworthiness. Have you ever heard the verse, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has passed away and the new have come. And you read that verse and you say, I keep struggling with the same things that I have for years. How can the verse say that in Christ you're a new creation and the old is gone and the new has come when I'm, I'm dealing with the same things I have for years? There must be something wrong with me. I must be such a great sinner that the grace doesn't apply to me. Unworthiness. So we make a New Year's resolution to try harder. There's a quotation that gives me so much hope. Lord, for so long, I thought your love demanded that I change. Have you felt that before? At last, I'm beginning to understand that your love changes me. We don't clean up to come to Jesus. Coming to Jesus cleans us up. And he wants us to come. But we have to be aware there is an accuser of the brethren who will accuse us and remind us of our sins. And you know what the Bible says about how you overcome him as the accuser. It says we, in Revelation 12, 11, it says, we overcome them by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. That's how we overcome the accuser. It's the blood of Jesus and it's our stories of what Jesus has done for us. It's our gratitude for what he's done for us that allows us to overcome. There's a quotation from the book Steps to Christ. When Satan comes to tell you you are a great sinner, has he done that to you? Has he told you you're a great sinner? When Satan comes to tell you you are a great sinner, look up to your Redeemer and talk of his merits. That which will help you is to look to his light. It's not try harder. It's look to Jesus. Acknowledge your sin, but tell the enemy that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and that you may be saved by his matchless grace. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe you can be saved by his matchless grace? Was the cross of Jesus strong enough for you? I, I shudder sometimes when I see what Jesus has done, and we step back and we say, I hope it works. In fact, 1 John 5.11 says, we can know we have eternal life when we've put our faith in Jesus. The woman went through some of the biggest challenges we will face on our spiritual journey. We will face the silence of God. We will encounter the coldness of God's people. We will have to deal with our own unworthiness and we will have to accept that we need a savior or we'll just focus on our own behavior and try harder or we'll just kind of shut down and live for today Jesus said to clean the inside of the cup and dish, then the outside would be clean. And as humans, we want to approach things on a behavior level. We don't want to admit that we, there's nothing we can do. We need a savior. There's got to be something we can do. Well, there is, and that's connect with Jesus and open up ourselves to him and spend time with him. Morris Finnan said, Christianity is not about what you do, it's about who you know. But who you know will change what you do. So focus on knowing Jesus. Grow in your personal relationship with him. Spend time with him. And give him permission to use your life to be a blessing to others. So I'm thinking what I would have done if Jesus was silent to my heartfelt plea for mercy. And if his people wanted me to go away and said so in front of me, and then Jesus said that his grace wasn't for me, I would probably give up and leave. And so this woman is a hero of mine. In fact, when I get to heaven, I want to find her. She's a brave woman with amazing faith. Then she came and worshipped him. Another version says she knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. She persevered through these amazing struggles of God's silence and the, God's people's coldness and her own unworthiness, and her response was to press closer to Jesus and say, you're my only hope. You're the only card I have to play is Jesus. But that's what she held on to. Women, in, in, when Jesus was here, women got Jesus oftentimes. And even to this day, I respect, ladies, how women get Jesus. And she showed us something here. In fact, the Desire of Ages says that even though Jesus was saying some difficult things for her to hear, he could not hide his tone of voice and the expression in his eyes of who he was. 
So she was reading him in spite of the words that she did not understand. She felt his heart. There will be things you don't understand. Focus on his heart and who he is and how he feels about you. This is something you can do. You can say, you can come and you can worship him and you can say, Lord, help me. And this is the passage why I, didn't, I never wanted to preach on this story. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. He called her a dog. Jesus, the most loving heart that ever was, called her a dog. And in that culture, that was a, a racial slur. I didn't know what to do with this. But did he really call her a dog? What, is the, what does it say? The little dogs. Okay, there's a clue there. The little dogs. In, the, in their language, they had, they had the kind of dog that we would think of as a cur. That's a, a dog that belongs to no one, a stray, that eats garbage and causes trouble. They had that term. But then you had the little dogs. Are there, is there anyone here who has a dog that is considered part of the family? Anyone here? At my house, there's a dog who sleeps on my bed. And I don't want him there. And if I'm awake, I'll shoo him off. But oftentimes I'll wake up and he'll be at the foot of the bed or sometimes he'll be right beside me. What are you going to do? He does. He does. <laughs> he does. The little dogs are the puppies. Jesus is he's doing, remember, he's talking to her and he's talking to the disciples. And he is communicating to her, but the fact he used the word the little dogs was saying there was a degree of acceptance there. Could you imagine if you were having a bad day and you were grumpy and you were not your best self and a family member, without you knowing, took out their phone and just recorded it and made a video of you on a not-a-good-day. And they, they kept that on their phone, and then when you have calmed down and you have had a good night's sleep and you've had water to drink and you've gone to a massage, so you're relaxed and you are pleasant and you are your best self, and they get that out and show it to you, what would that be like? What Jesus was doing was he was, trying to, uh, he was trying to hold up for the disciples their own hearts and their own prejudice. As humans, we don't take that well. Who, me? No. 
So how is he going to help them understand the prejudice and the hardness of their own hearts? So what he's going to do is he's going to treat this lady the way they would. And he's going to let her response show them how wrong they were. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. I'm thinking it had to hurt Jesus to say this to her. For me, I would have walked away. Jesus uses what is called reductio ad absurdum. In other words, he is letting the disciples' hearts and their behavior and their prejudice be carried out to its, to its extreme. They're seeing how much this mother loves her child. I don't cry often. I'm a very emotional person, but I don't cry much. But if anything makes me cry, it's a parent hurting over a child. And I sob like a baby. Because there's something that just taps into me at a very, very deep level. So they're watching how much she loves her baby, her girl. And they're also seeing her persevering faith with Jesus. And they have to acknowledge that her heart believes in Jesus more and cares about others more than theirs does. Jesus is holding up a mirror for them to see themselves. It's acutely embarrassing. Uh, One commentator said it this way. It is acutely embarrassing to hear and see one's deepest prejudices verbalized and demonstrated. It's very difficult. So Jesus... (laughs) had just said about the bread to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. The faith this woman had, the spirit this woman had, This is one of the best comebacks in history. And what is she really saying? This was her strongest statement of faith. Lord, whatever crumbs you have for me, if it's from you, it'll be enough. I trust you enough that even if I get crumbs, it's okay. Because it'll be enough because it comes from you. That's a hard place to get to. Lord, I'm not going to tell you what I need. I'm going to say, I'm going to put myself in your hands. I'm going to trust your heart for what I need. That's a very, very deep statement of faith. The disciples are watching this faith. Her confidence in Jesus. Her love for her sick child. And again, the commentator said, her response is a deadly blow to their carefully nurtured prejudices against women and Gentiles. Evil cannot be redeemed until it is exposed. And God, Jesus had to bring their prejudice 
and their hard hearts to the surface before he could heal it. We can't heal what we don't acknowledge. In the Garden of Eden, when humankind sinned, our first response was to go hide because of shame. Shame makes us want to hide. Then when God called them, they covered up. They put on fig leaves. They covered up. So our human response to our brokenness is we hide, we cover up, and then what was the third thing they did? They blamed. And that's our responses. Evil cannot be redeemed until it is exposed. And it cannot be healed in me as long as I hide, cover up, and blame. And I'm a blamer. I'm a blamer. The Holy Spirit has to work very hard with me on that. Yes, Lord. Yet even the little puppies, the little dogs, eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. Remember, she didn't say, for my daughter. She said, do this for me. Have mercy on me. And Jesus meets her and said, he doesn't say, your daughter's healed. He said, let it be as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus only marveled at amazing faith and stubborn unbelief. That's the thing that made Jesus marvel. Do you want to make him marvel? Have faith. So where are you in your spiritual journey? Are you experiencing the silence of God? Have you or are you experiencing the coldness of God's people. Do I dare ask, is there someone you're being cold to? Is there someone you won't speak to? Is there someone you give the cold shoulder to? Are you struggling with feelings of unworthiness? Do you feel labeled? Do you feel that there's prejudice against you. In Luke 1, 18, 8, it says, I will tell you he will see there get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus asks this question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? As you look around, do you see people leaving faith? Some? Is it an easy time, living the end of times like we are, is it an easy time to have faith? No. And that's why we need stories like this woman. The woman helped Jesus hold up a mirror for the disciples to see their own lack of faith and their own prejudice to people different than them. She was challenged to be persistent in her faith and to pursue Jesus with passion. We often think of 
faith as certitude. The absolute certainty or conviction. But I see people in the Bible struggling with their faith because certitude crashes on the rocks of despair. But faith holds on when we hit the rocks of despair. Why is God silent? I don't know. But when he is silent, you're in good company. When you're in God's waiting room, you sit with good people. Job, David, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Jesus, and this amazing woman. And the Bachenbach family. She wanted to live so her daughter could be healed. In 1999, I had a Bible student named Travis Allen. He was diagnosed with leukemia. I went as his pastor, I went to visit him. And he told me, Pastor Bill, he was 17 years old. He said, I don't want to die. He had dreams of going to medical school. He had a girlfriend. He was a good athlete. He was a good musician. He had a lot to live for. And he was diagnosed with very aggressive leukemia. He went and got treatment at the hospital. And he had, was losing his hair. He was really suffering. He came back to the campus. I was the faculty member <clears throat> on duty at supervision at the gym. And he was sitting with his girlfriend on the, on the, the stage. And, you know, we, we, we didn't allow the, the students to smooch each other. And if they did, they were put on what's called social. And, but he'd been having a rough time. And I saw her just give him a kiss on the lips. And I thought, you know, if anyone deserves a kiss. And I just turned my back. And I didn't feel bad about it either. He got sicker and sicker. His friends would go see him in the hospital. And he would say, I'm not going to survive this. But I want you to promise me you'll be in heaven. Because I'm going to be bummed if you're not there. I want to hang out with you in heaven. And one of his friends was drinking heavily. Parents didn't know. Pastor didn't know, but it was a secret. But he said, your drinking is coming between you and Jesus. Promise me you'll stop it. What are you going to do? His friend just wept. And his friends promised they'd be in heaven with him. And as he got sicker and sicker, he said this, Jesus is the last card I have to play. But with that card, I'll win the game. He went to sleep on October 22, 1999. And at the memorial service, one of his classmates, a girl he had grown up neighbors with, was up on the platform sharing her memories of Travis. And she said something that 
haunts me to this day. She said, you are the only person that gave me a reason to believe. This is somebody raised going through our schools, going to church in a Christian home, but what gave her a reason to believe was seeing someone trust God when he was silent. His faith gave others a reason to believe. In the book of Jude, chapter 20, uh, verses 20 to 22, but you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. And the way it says it in the Greek, the word for out is ek, and then the word for into. And so it says, build yourselves up out of faith and into faith. In other words, there are stages of maturity and faith, and it's saying, grow in your faith, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith in us? The blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. When people were being persecuted and dying for their faith, others would see and they'd say, what is so important that it's worth dying for? I might like to have something worth dying for. Well, I believe that putting your faith in God leaves a trail for others to follow. It's kind of like you're lost out in the wilderness and you're starving and cold and lost and you stumble on a trapper's cabin and the trapper has left firewood and matches and canned food and you can live. When you live faith in spite of God's silence and in spite of the challenges, you're leaving a cabin with food and matches and wood for someone else on their journey to inspire them. And they may say, what have I done to deserve a love like this?